ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Prep Your Standard NATO. Today's guest is Captain Wayne Gardner from the Army Museum of Western Australia. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. That's fine, Shay. Happy to be here and uh, happy to speak about the Army Museum of Western Australia. Now, I'm going to guess that because you're working with the Army Museum, you're actually Army. Yes, that's right. I'm an Army Reserve officer. Mm-hmm. I joined the Army Reserve back in 1973 when it was called the Citizens Military Force, the mm-hmm. CMF. And then in the uh, mid-70s, it changed to the Army Reserve. And I joined 10th Light Horse, the armoured uh, regiment in Western Australia, originally in B Squadron, and then uh, to A Squadron once the uh, regiment became a squadron. And I was a, a trooper and uh, temporary corporal there, and then I went off to officer training around about 1978, 79, mm-hmm. came back to the uh, unit as a troop leader lieutenant, stayed with the unit for around another four or five years, and then uh, was pursuing some studies, mm-hmm. uh, business studies, away from the Army Reserve. And I was offered the uh, appointment of Deputy Curator at the Army Museum of Western Australia. And uh, the Army was aware, or certainly the officers who were giving me that position, were aware that I'd been a volunteer at the Army Museum since 1978. So I was interested in military history then. And so this was quite a good posting to have while I completed studies. But as it turned out, I didn't go back to mainstream soldiering. I actually stayed within the Army uh, Museum network and went on to become a curator and now the assistant manager at the Army Museum uh, some 40-plus years later. Wow, that's pretty amazing that you managed to take that little bit of volunteering and suddenly it's become your career. Yes, it's quite amazing. It's remarkable. Certainly no grand plan there. (laughs) And I certainly didn't think... I'd still be in uniform uh, at this stage of the game either. But within the Army these days, particularly the Army Reserve, with certain skills and, and different type of units that we have today, they uh, do allow you to stay on until compulsory retirement age, which for me actually comes up this year, as it turns out. The, the Army's finally caught up with me. So we'll see how all that goes. But it's a great, it was a great opportunity, and it fitted hand in glove with my civilian background because my background... My career path there was as an auctioneer and valuer, Hmm. uh, specialising in antiques and collectibles. And my absolute specialty was uh, the the military side of things. So I did that for about 40 years. So I retired from that a few years ago, Mm -hmm. but it allowed me to spend two or three days a week and uh, being an Army Reserve uh, person with the Army Museum still. Sounds like all the cars just kind of fell in the right place for you. Yeah, there's been great opportunities that have come along the way. There's no doubt about that. And combined with my civilian career, with, with the opportunities that came through that avenue mm-hmm. and the military side of it, it's been quite wonderful. One of the great opportunities was back in about 19, uh, 1995 or so when I was asked to be involved with the uh, uh, TV broadcast for ABC coverage of the Perth Anzac Day Parade mm-hmm. with the, the late uh, Colonel Keith Howard. He'd been doing it for a number of years. And so I co-hosted with him back in those days. I was offered that opportunity. And after about three years or so, I... I went out on my own with it, mm-hmm. with the, the ABC anchor. And so I've been doing the ABC uh, broadcast as the military, inverted commas, expert to comment <laughs> on the parade uh, for all those years. And again, that's been great. That's my subtle sort of contribution to educating the public at large. They're watching the Anzac Day Parade and mm-hmm. obviously looking out for their relatives and all the different units that come by. While I'm trying to explain really the essence of what all the units are about and different personalities and people that are down there. That's a lot of knowledge to have stored up in your head because we have so many units marching. How do you remember them all? Well, while we're speaking of that, what happens is that throughout the year between uh, ABC and then to the RSL, mm-hmm. they gather together information from the units, those yep. that want to participate, some don't, but, but most do, and they provide basic information 
from that, we then have our meetings and we look at what information we have. And it also tells us if there's any special people visiting from overseas or interstate who are attending the parade for the first time, mm. if there's any special personalities or uh, commemorations we need to mention, we'll mention those and happy to do that. But also, that's a basis and we can't read those notes because a lot of the units are only on for seconds on, on mm-hmm. screen. And we're just looking at a small computer-type laptop monitor. That's, that's our vision of the march. So we can only comment what comes on screen. So with the information that's been given on our sheets, our preparation, and I prepare all through the year, I'm taking snippets of notes, a few perhaps obituaries, and people have passed away, certain celebrities, or mm-hmm. just you know, ordinary folk who, you know, who have passed on, men and women who've served in you know, different conflicts, and you know, mention them. Uh, and that's really make it very personal. So you do, you're building that information up with mm-hmm. the information you're given plus your own and, and that's how it all sort of unfolds. So, you know, you said that you've, this is your little contribution to educating WA but seeing that you're doing this and you're doing the Army Museum, it kind of seems like you've had a big impact on education and military history in Western Australia. Well, yes, I, I guess so. It's one of those things that creep up on you a bit, you know. I've always been a great supporter of, of uh, people who are involved in, in, in writing and researching military history books. We're very fortunate in Western Australia to have a, a great group, people who have got involved uh, over the time, and they have produced some wonderful publications, and I'm only, you know, it's just so keen to support them in any way we can. The Army Museum, of course, supports the public, and particularly our core business being education mm-hmm. so the schools have plugged into us over the years we've talked to the history teachers association many years ago and they come and go with us and we really you know really want to be current and relevant in that regard so we are out there just letting the public know what's going on and and of course with the centenary that we've just completed mm-hmm. you know 1914 to 1918 the 100th anniversary of the great war that's really encouraged the public really to come forward and, and seek out information about their own families. Mm. So it's been a, a, quite a remarkable thing. There was a very difficult period just following the Vietnam War, uh, which sadly a lot of our history was just forgotten about or, or they, people just didn't want to know about it. But people like myself and others, the, the, really, the true believers in really trying to make sure our history is not forgotten, mm. pursued it and, and kept it bubbling along, knowing that, look, this is just a passing phase and, and just with focus... We, we'll gather our thoughts again and, and warts and all in our military history yep. tell the story and, and that's uh, really what we've set out to do over the years but yes as I said no certainly no grand plan it's just <laughs> I wonder what's going to happen today type of business mm. so you're the assistant manager of the museum uh, I'm the assistant manager yep. so what happens is and perhaps if I explain a bit of the background to the yeah. army museum for, so that we know we stand there the army museum of western australia was founded back in 1977 mm-hmm by the then commander of 5th Military District, as it was known in Western Australia, Brigadier Bill Jamison, and he only passed away recently. And he was the commander, he wanted an army museum in his, in his patch, so he uh, allocated a building, which was uh, uh, an old colonial mansion, a lovely two-storey place called Dillhorn, on the corner of Lord and Bulwer Streets in East Perth. And that's near the NIB Stadium. And in fact, that was the, the home's front garden in its colonial day, in fact. So that was a task force headquarters, but fell into disuse, but was still owned by Army. Mm-hmm. And so that building was allocated to the museum back in 1977, and we were there until 1995. So we developed uh, the story of the military in Western Australia, mm-hmm. male and female service. And I must say in those early days too, the women, particularly uh, ex-service women, were very, very strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wanted to have their story told, and they were very proactive and very well organised. 
and they actually we could allocate them rooms within the within this big house. Uh, so uh, the women who served in the army could tell their story, the nurses could tell their story, mm-hmm. and so on. And even the curator wouldn't dare go into those rooms and alter anything, because that would uh, yes, they, that would uh, be quite di- difficult for the curator. <laughs> the women would possess their story and they told it the way they wanted to tell it, which mm-hmm. was wonderful. But of course, over the years, we outgrew the uh, the uh, East Perth residents, Dillhorn. Um, in fact, some of our, our volunteers, because of their age, couldn't even get up the stairs in the end. So uh, we were offered um, a chance to move, mm-hmm. and also the building was going to be uh, disposed of, which happens with defence assets from time to time. And we were offered the Swan Barracks, part of Swan Barracks, mm-hmm. near, the, near the museum there in town. But we scoped that, and it really wasn't suitable for what we had in mind. Uh, to, certainly we couldn't put a lot of our larger vehicle displays outside mm-hmm. there, and parking was going to be a real issue. We could forecast that. So we were also offered artillery barracks in Fremantle. So it was a massive move from uh, you know, Perth to Fremantle for the museum, but the artillery barracks suited it perfectly, historically mm-hmm. important, and with the potential for enlarging and developing the space to a new level. Mm-hmm. So in 1995, we actually moved. We didn't, once we said yes, we started doing our preparation from 93 through to 95 and made the move down to artillery barracks. And the barracks themselves are so important because the actual barracks themselves are unique in Australia because... Barracks such as this now have either been sold off and totally demolished mm-hmm. or partially demolished, mm-hmm. certainly sold off, because obviously over the years they've occupied now real estate, which has become very valuable, and Defence decides to dispose of them. And I may talk on that a bit later on. <laughs> but the barracks themselves, we can actually do walking tours of the barracks, which we call built heritage, mm-hmm. and that is a classic. It was started in 1910, finished in 1913, just prior to the First War. Those dates are actually on the buildings, mm-hmm. And typical barracks of that sort of late Victorian Edwardian period mm-hmm. that you'd find in Australia, in Canada, in India, at Aldershot in UK and South Africa and places like that. So, but this is intact pretty well. And we can walk and do a walking tours of that site. So straight away that barracks becomes important. And then, of course, we've converted into a museum. So what we did was we're telling the story of Western Australians in the Army and the Army in Western Australia. Mm-hmm. And we start... With the, uh, the with British settlement in 1826 in Albany and, and 1829 in Swan River Colony, as it was called here in Perth, and go right through to our current operations just finishing, and while well, we still have our young men and women in Afghanistan and Iraq, but we still, we're still telling that story. So everything in between in different themed galleries. So our galleries will cover what we call the pre-1914 gallery, which is the story of that 1826 to Federation, 1901, mm-hmm. and... Uh, colonial experience in the Boer War and, and the story of the artillery barracks. And then we move into the Great War and there's a gallery set aside for that from 1914 right through to 1918. And we also have a life-size trench system set up where people can walk through and experience a bit of trench life as, as far as you can <laughs> in those environments. And then uh, and that covers us both Gallipoli, um, Western Front in France and Belgium and also into the Middle East with the Light Horse and the Desert Campaign. And then we have a, a prisoner of war experience from our first prisoners who were taken during the Boer War, 1899 to 1902, right through to our last prisoners of war from Western Australia were captured by the Chinese in the Korean War in the early 50s. And uh, then we have World War II gallery, 1939 to 45. We have a peacekeeping gallery, which talks about our men and women who have served, certainly since the Second World War, under the United Nations banner and our own banner in peacekeeping operations throughout the world. Mm. And also then we move into our post-1945 gallery, which deals with everything from um, the occupation of Japan right through to Afghanistan and the conflicts in between. 
We also have a gallery set up that covers the citizens' military forces story and also the army reserve story, because mm. they have a contrib huge contribution to make. Tens of thousands of men and women went through that. So we're covering all this whole experience, but we're doing it in such a way that's very user-friendly to the public as well. It's not designed for the specialist military enthusiasts per se or the collective certain objects. It's designed for the public and designed particularly for upper high school people. It's worked very hard to achieve that. So that's essentially where the museum is. We did have a bit of a battle to stay there at one stage. 1999 to about 2004, the site was going to be sold off. We just ended up setting up all our galleries as they were at that stage and ready to really crack on. Yeah. And uh, this occurred, and so that was a, a body blow. So the volunteers and the public reacted against that, and it was a very difficult time. But um, in the end, the campaign was won, and the museum could stay, and the barracks were retained. And with that tenure, that permanent tenure, we could now go for grants. Mm. And through Lottery West, we've been very generous. Gained a grant just short of about $2 million back in 2008 or so. And revamped all the galleries to a very high standard, working with graphic designers and things like that. Not just our gifted amateurs uh, <laughs> blue tacking a few things up and doing this and doing that. Yeah. Although our galleries were always very well, well re received by the public. Mm. But this lifted us to a whole new standard. And, uh, which was quite marvellous, of course, and has really set the pace. And visitors have been very impressed with what they're seeing. Uh, Dr Brendan Nelson, who's the director of the Australian War Memorial in Canberra, has visited and you know, extremely pleased with what he's seen, particularly the uh, uh, Kokoda track diorama we've set up life-size of our soldiers on the track because the 2nd 16th Battalion and West Australian Battalion played a prominent part. Mm. And while I'm mentioning the Australian War Memorial, they're not connected to the museum uh, in any way. Mm. They're a standalone organisation because our unit is an army unit. Mm -hmm. We are part of an army unit called the Australian Army History Unit, which mm -hmm. was formed in the late 1990s mm. to look after all these museums which are springing up on army sites by enthusiasts. Mm -hmm. And army units and certain people let them do these things. But then it was getting a little bit out of control, it would appear. <laughs> and uh, so Australian Army History Unit was formed to, look, let's have a look at this, let's just get some structure going and so on. And it's been hugely successful. And Army History Unit has found its place within the Army. And so we have regional museums within our Army History Unit. They look after the, the state story of each state, so South Australia and Victoria and New South Wales, Queensland. They will talk about their people. Mm -hmm. And then you have your core museums, where they'll, they'll be centralised mostly on the East, east Coast, where you have the core Royal Australian Infantry Corps museums or Royal Australian Armoured Corps, yeah. Royal Australian Artillery, Ordnance Corps, right down to Pay Corps, Site Corps, Int Corps. You know, they all have their, their little outlets where they're telling their stories. So this is all controlled now by Army History Unit. And it was important that Army History Unit be formed because up until then, really, our gathering of Army History had lapsed a formal way. Mm -hmm. During the First War, Charles Bean, who was an official correspondent who became our great historian, started gathering objects and stories along the way as the war evolved and then developed other people into it. And in fact, we didn't form uh, an army history section made up of people of different ranks and photographers, the Frank Hurleys, the Wilkins. Then you had others, Trelaw and Mitchell, helping Bean. And these are great names in our, in our history side of things. Mm. And so they were gathering objects, getting the stories together with a view they would start up what they would call a memorial one day. Mm. And that actually finally happened uh, in the early, nine, uh, yeah, early 1940s as World War II was on. Mm. They actually started the Australian War Memorial in Canberra then. It took all that time to get it off the ground. But from World War II onwards, our gathering in a formal, a structured way had really stopped. We had sent out correspondence, we'd sent out official war artists. 
there was no real structure to it. You know, what was gathered and retained was by soldiers coming back from the war or sending souvenirs back to their families or, or sweethearts and people like this, you know, children. And so we, we went through the, um, the post-World War II period, uh, the Korean conflict, the Malayan emergency, the Indonesian confrontation, our peacekeeping, uh, then into Vietnam and post-Vietnam operations. And it wasn't until just before we entered East Timor in 1999 that we had now Army History Unit who would, could go out and formally speak to soldiers, collect objects with a, with a purpose, so that you weren't chasing objects from 50 years ago to try and set up a museum. You're actually gathering them now. Mm-hmm. This is history. And so it's been hugely successful as well. So within the Army Museum, that's why we have people in uniform. Mm-hmm. We are an Army unit. Our museum's a very large one, though, within Army History Unit. We have almost 120 volunteers, mm-hmm. which is massive. A lot of the other units don't have the, the space that we have, the mm-hmm. barracks to themselves. They may have a room or a building or two. So they might have six to eight to 20 volunteers. So ours is huge. And we're very highly regarded within the Army History Unit structure. So we have a museum manager, who's a, a major, and myself as assistant manager. Mm-hmm. And we have a, a female private, who's the admin officer. And we also then can have project officers or uh, other uniform staff come and assist from time to time. But it's really the volunteers under the foundation that look after the museum on a day-to-day basis. So the foundation was formed so that we could, you know, employ volunteers. When I say that, uh, slave labour, unemployed, (laughs) and we don't paid them at all. But they're wonderful people who volunteer. And and look, some have had military experience, others have none. And we're always looking for volunteers. So while I speak of this now, that if there's people who are listening, if they'd like to be involved with the Army Museum, then we're most appreciative for them to come forward so we can uh, get them involved. I mean, they get involved with hosting and guiding tour groups through. They can get involved with the curatorial side in managing the collection, actually dealing with the objects. They can get archives and research, the library. It's pretty massive, and we need the people, because without the volunteers, we simply could not operate. So we're open now from Wednesdays to Sundays mm-hmm. from 10.30 in the morning till through till 3 in the afternoon over those days with final entry at 1 o'clock. Sometimes we'll leave the gates open till about 1.30 mm-hmm. but it does take two hours at least to go through. So we want to make sure people have a good experience. And then I said the core business is really school so we're encouraging the schools to be involved and particularly leading up to Anzac Day it's extremely busy. Mm-hmm for everyone involved in our field, that the museum is because the schools are coming through because generally Anzac Day falls on school on day term. And that's extremely busy. And that's what the volunteers love to see. The older people love to see those younger people coming through and, and, and showing interest in, in what we're doing. Uh, so the foundation being set up, we have a chairman and, and a foundation board of about um, five people. And then the, we have treasurer and, and they have other jobs. We have an HR manager, we have a marketing manager an events coordinator and these are volunteers and so they've just risen to the occasion to decide this is what they'd like to do in addition to other jobs they do mm-hmm. and uh, so it's it's a massive structure which needs that foundation group so the foundation look after and manage the volunteers and and, and uh, recruit them and they'll also look after fundraising mm-hmm. because that's a big part of any organization particularly not-for-profit yeah. you know everyone's struggling to get you know the, the money in and uh, we have fundraising events, we, ha- we charge a fee to come through, which people are very happy to accept. We've had various concerts and events on the parade ground, or car park as we call it now at the, at the museum. And uh, we've had some high profile performers uh, in, the, in the past, and you know, between 1,000 and 2,500 visitors or attendees at those concerts. Yeah. So money raised there. We have a good connection with 
a Fremantle football club, the Dockers, mm-hmm. uh, over the last number of years, where the military side of our museum looks after the military ceremonial portion, you know, the last post, the honour guard, raising the flags, and, and that sort of level of celebration or commemoration. And uh, also gets veterans involved and things like this at different themes they run. But it also allows us to, as we could say, rattle the tins uh, outside the gates by our volunteers. Yeah. And that raises funds as well. So there's lots of activity going on. There's a good, happy group, a good mix of people to bring a lot of life skills and their, their, their career talents to us, which we're so grateful for, which, which makes us a, a success as well. So that's the sort of the museum in general terms. Obviously, within the collection, there's some outstanding objects mm. and with some just fascinating stories, which, you know, sort of films are made out of less yes. if you really looked into it. Yeah, absolutely. With our museum, we have um, four Victoria Cross uh, medals in the collection, mm. and the Victoria Cross being the, the Supreme Gallantry Award within the British Commonwealth, um, but certainly we have the Victoria Cross for Australia now under our own honours and awards system. Mm-hmm. And we had the recipients during the Afghanistan campaign of the Victoria Cross. And so we have four. So that normally also is an indication of, of the quality of museum, that, that families are prepared to give these things to us mm-hmm. and not let them go necessarily to the Australian War Memorial, where they've got a huge collection, and rightly so. But some of the families said, look, we just prefer to have these objects in Western Australia where Western Australians can see it, because we have the tyranny of distance, mm-hmm. as people can travel quite readily. So the Victoria Cross, we have a, a Private Martin O'Meara's from the First War, 16th Battalion for the Posiers in France. And we have a two for the Second War, Percy Gratwicks, who was with the 2nd 48th Battalion, who was killed in action, gaining his VC at El Alamein, 2nd 48th Battalion. And Tom Stasevich, he was with the 2nd 43rd Battalion, and he gained his against the Japanese in, um, in Borneo, northern Borneo. And the fourth Victoria Cross is an unusual one, but it's to do with the Afghanistan campaign of 1880 when the British were fighting in Afghanistan and northwest frontier of India in that period. So it's to an officer. He gained his uh, at a battle of Kandahar. So that people who understand the history would see that straight away, well, that's a name we sort of know today and we're still there. Yeah. And we've, you know, the British forces and now Australians have been in and out of Afghanistan since around about 1830s. It's just from those places that uh, you come and go on. So there they are, four VCs. Yeah. And another interesting story that springs to mind with a medal group we've got is uh, a chapter called Tom Johnson. Mm-hmm. And Tom uh, went away with the 2nd 11th Battalion in World War II and was awarded the Military Medal for Gallantry at Derna in the very early North African campaigns in 1941 and then was involved with the disastrous campaigns in Greece and Crete and he was badly wounded on Crete and captured. And even as a prisoner of war, he was an absolute nuisance to the Germans. He never escaped, but he was not very cooperative, and he did suffer from that. But after the war, he then served with the occupation forces in Japan with the Australians in 1946 and 47 that period. But he met an American servicewoman, and they married. So he left the army, and he went to live in America. And while he's in America, he joined the National Guard, the National Army Guard. And when the Korean War broke out in the 50s, he was called up and he fought with, the, fought with the Americans in Korea. And then after that, he decided, well, he quite liked the lifestyle of the American army and he joined as a regular American soldier. OK, sure. <laughs> He's a you know, Perth boy. He did three tours in South Vietnam with the Americans and ended up as a master sergeant. Right. And so came back to Perth in his later years, um, in his 80s, he passed away here in Perth. And uh, we have his medal group which is the the Australian side of it and the American side of it and also his American 
uniform. And so when we put that on display, people often balk and say, well, why is this American Master Sergeant's uniform there? But suddenly this fantastic and unique story within the Australian Army uh, comes out. And it's often those really unusual, quirky things that people are looking for as well. Yeah, it's quite an unusual story. That's definitely one that will make people go, hold on a second, that's pretty interesting. Yes, there's a lot happening. And I think, too, Shay, you'll find that people find their own level within the displays and the objects that are there. Mm. I mean, you could have this Victoria Cross sitting there, but there might be a pair of boots nearby, mm. and someone will, that'll be their memory of the museum. They'll say, this, look, my dad had these sort of boots or something. It's a memory yeah. that was powerful to them. And also when we display objects like those objects, and um, we try and get a photograph of the, the person who wore them in mm-hmm. World War One or World War Two, So it adds that really that personal touch as well. Yeah. So certainly, certainly lots to see uh, when we go there. With the Army Museum, because of current security restrictions on um, Army bases, and that's what we are, we are at an Army barracks. Yeah. We do have the front gate is generally sort of closed off, although we have all the signs saying we are open. <laughs> so don't just drive by. The, the gates are closed just for security, but we, it's always manned by our volunteers when we're open. So people will then just visit off the street. They park in the street. Mm-hmm. But when you have, you can organise book tours of 10 or more people as well. And if you're coming in group tours, mm-hmm. then you actually park your vehicle or bus inside the barracks themselves. So we have the off-the-street visitors, and we have those people who come in in group tours as well to visit. And all sorts of rotary probers, car clubs everything and we also opened the museum um, some of the buildings to ex-service organizations mm-hmm. so it's not just for the the military history side of it with other buildings that we've got when we're not using them the lecture room and the officers mess ex-service organizations come along and have their AGMs and different meetings there and we yep. encourage that and there'll be social functions that some of these different units will have mm-hmm. and also our connection with the Australian Army so that often recruits who are just starting out and reading after their training at Kapuka or somewhere like mm-hmm. that and come through the museum first with their recruiting people to give them an idea and sense of the, of the history yeah. and a real feel for it before they now go off and train. Mm-hmm. Others, when they've done their training, have come back to their reserve units in Western Australia and then they're newly arrived in their uh, units here. They'll be brought through as a group so that they'll focus particularly on their unit. Mm-hmm. What did 16th Battalion do? Mm-hmm. Or you know, what does Ordnance do? What's the artillery doing? And what is, you know... 10th Line Horse doing. So we can show them different aspects. So it gives them a really a sense of pride and a tradition has evolved, esprit de corps, mm. encourages morale, encourages retention within the system as well. So it's multifaceted. Uh, the other interesting intangible thing too that's come out of the museum world and one we certainly never planned on was that, um, that we have a lot of volunteers who come in and are ex-service people, mm. particularly from the Vietnam we noticed this. And they came in as volunteers but they really just wanted the experience of being able to talk to people who understood them more or connect with with people who have similar stories. Mm. And that's become a huge thing. And in fact, we've seen with some World War II people who have opened up, who have really kept very tight from their World War II experience, Mm. that coming to the museum as a volunteer has allowed them to open up because the public want to hear their story. They're asking them. And uh, so there's been some amazingly important uh, health and wellness type issues that have have been achieved at the museum as well which you, you can't plan for. No. So it's a, it's a nice thing to see in that regard. It's so much more than just a, you know, boots on display. It's these volunteers, it's those stories, it's healing for some people. It really is an amazing place. Yeah, look, it is like that. And often people will come down to the museum and when younger families will come down with the children, which, of course, we encourage, naturally. But the parents say, gosh, I've got to come back here and, and see this mm-hmm. on my own next time and yeah. take my time. 
The tourist people coming around who are travelling around Australia always pop in and have a look. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to get into the, uh, the with Fremantle Port and the ships visiting, those that are interested in military history will yeah. seek us out as well. And there's a lot going on in the immediate area because obviously with the Army Army Museum of Western Australia where it is at Artillery Barracks. Then you've got the uh, WA Museum, the Maritime Museum, close mm-hmm. by in Fremantle. And, and of course they tell them more of a social story but they have a military section to deal with their our military history with the Navy. The Aviation Museum at the Raffra Estate at Bull Creek mm-hmm. and uh, fantastic uh, artillery tunnels at Leighton Battery at Buckland Hill. Mm-hmm. So this little group or cluster, you know, within kilometres of each other, a few kilometres of each other, telling their different tri-service history, Navy, Army, Air Force yeah. as well. So it's, it's quite interesting if you have that fix and you want to move around, <laughs> then that's good too. But Fremantle's great because, of course, people come to the museum, spend a couple of hours, then pop into Fremantle and then go down to the harbour and have a luncheon. Mm-hmm or whatever, you know what I mean, it's, it's really conducive to that type of type of thing yeah. and sometimes people say to us with the, the museum you know, it's a blokey place and in essence, because it's military I guess it is yeah. um, and, uh, but the women are a bit surprised at times how, in fact, they much they enjoy it because of the way these stories are portrayed, the mm-hmm. colours we use and how we interpret different things and, and they enjoy it, you know, as well they really get into the spirit of it mm-hmm. But there's that social connection where they can simply say, well, but this is great, we've done this, now let's go and just pop down the road and go by the river. <laughs> so it's, it's really, really quite, quite good in that regard as mm. well. Yeah, so certainly a, a lot going on, and, and certainly within the Australian Army History Unit based mm. in Canberra, uh, as I said before, very highly regarded. And uh, we set our own standards, and we're probably lucky that we are so remote from the other museums on the East Coast that we can say, well, this is what we believe is appropriate, this is how we're going to tackle it. And we have been the trendsetters for Army history, and a lot of things we've introduced have become mainstream museum practice with other museums on the East Coast. Oh, yeah. It's, it's occurred. Mm. And from our early start back in the East Perth days in 1977 through to that 95 period, you know, we were sort of a group of gifted amateurs, enthusiasts, really trying our best to pull things together, and we, we always did a good job. Mm-hmm. And, but it's really since the more recent times, and some of us have done formal museum courses and, and looked at museum more seriously and qualified as best we can. And so within the museum community of Western Australia, the WA Museum is taking us as a serious players in the museum world now. Mm-hmm. And sometimes small little regional country museums mm-hmm. in country towns, they'll send people via the WA Museum perhaps down to our museum just to see how we do certain things. Yeah. How do we store this and do that? And we're putting together, as we speak, a sort of a package to help out similar groups, but also um, a lot of RSL sub-branches who have small collections mm. that they're managing. So we just don't have the time to, to spend all this time running courses like that. Okay. It's hard to run such a thing. But we're putting a package together through our curator and, and I think uh, sort of the Museums Australia or that museum specialist group, mm-hmm. professional group, a package where the RSL will say, enough sub-branch will say, look, we're doing this, we'll say, right, here's the package, this is how you manage these things, these are the contacts, these are the links, and so on. So, because we're just not there all the time, yeah. we just cannot do it. And a lot of things, even in our own museum, do move in slow time, which frustrates some people sometimes, <laughs> but we always get there, yeah. you know, and, and we just sort of, you know, tick along, but it's just a, a great environment, very unusual, and it's rare that, uh, you know, when people do leave, it's because of, you know, perhaps some, an illness, mm-hmm. rage is creeping up on them or they're having to move or something's occurred. Really, they just stay 
until stumps. You know, we've had members here, you know, who've been 25 years, 20 years, 15 years, just not uncommon at all. Yeah, they just become part of the museum themselves. Well, they do. They immerse themselves <laughs> in it. They do. And they, they get a bit disappointed when we're close for Christmas and Easter. Yeah. Like, what are we going to do for ourselves? <laughs> and sometimes even on a larger side too, even the, the, when we've had our Christmas functions, the, um, which we have at the end of each year, and the, some of the ladies that come along with their husbands say, look, thank goodness for this army museum. This is such a great place. It gets my husband out. He can, he's not underfoot anymore. He can go and do this, and I can do my thing. You know, so there's, I guess, another intangible, which we didn't expect. So, uh, no, it's all, it's all good fun. I mean, it's, it's serious at times, and um, what, we're, what we're really, the stories we're, we're trying to retain and, and, and interpret and, and pass on and tell are really important, and we're very focused. But like most soldiers, male and female, they'll say just lighten up at times. Yeah. You know, it's, it's all just it's sort of part of life. And, and look, it's really, it really can be seen as an anti-war museum because we know how senseless war is. Mm. But what there is there is this human endurance, amazing quality. You know, how do we just ordinary fight? Because we're not a warlike nation. Mm. You know, we're not a nation of warriors, but we put our hand up when you have to put your hand up. And then when it's time to take the green skin off, you take it off and try and get back into Sydney Street. Mm. And of course that can be a huge challenge as well as we, we now know more than we've known in previous generations. So uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on to take into account, but human endurance is probably the major driving force and, and how do people just cope in these amazing situations. And mm. It answers a lot of questions why they don't talk about it when they come home. Yeah, All sorts of things like that, you know. It's a massive readjustment for people. So that sort of gives you a background to the... Um, the Army Museum as it is, and because I'm quite an enthusiastic supporter of the museum, I could go on for a long time about it, particularly with the different stories and objects we've got. Yeah. And this, uh, you know, it is it's just a bottomless pit of great things. So we're very lucky that the the pieces that come in, where there's very few purchases we've actually had to make, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes we've had to fill a gap in a collection or part of the story to tell, but more often than not, we just work on the objects that have been given to us the treasures that people have had in their own families and now they've decided, look, the family's so big, who do we leave it with now? Mm-hmm. Are they going to manage it properly? And it's all the museum's there and so it's, it's a place where people can come and go from time to time and even if it's not on public display with warning, mm-hmm. we can look into our, our storage area and bring that object forward so mm-hmm. people can then have a look at it and have photographs taken with, with uh, family. So there's all those sorts of things with, with good museum practice. That's what you try and try and do because it's not there for us it's there for the people yeah. of course the community so you must get a few people that send you a message or an email or kind of just rock up and they're somehow connected to something in the museum or they want to learn more about their family history yes yeah they do we get a huge amount of inquiries particularly through the centenary which has put mm-hmm. that side of it on the map and that's a good thing but of course it's a huge burden for our <laughs> staff because yeah. we just as I said part time not there I mean I do a fair bit of work as a lot of the other volunteers do in their own time away from the museum mm-hmm to make those few days when we're on the ground work, yeah. you have to be doing things away. But again, there are links and little packages we can point the people to mm-hmm. because we just don't have the time ourselves to do that research for them. Yeah. But because there's so much online now, and, and, and if it's not, we can recommend certain publications which we're aware of mm-hmm. that they patch mightn't be, and other places they can do their own research and, and enjoy doing that research yeah. you know, rather than us trying to do it because we simply just don't have the time for it. But because we've been around so long, we know where to look, what the links are, and, and different things to help people because that's what it's all about as well. And sometimes they'll get their research back. Mm-hmm. And because it's in a language that's not really used today, yeah. they want th- that research interpreted. You yeah. know, what does these abbreviations mean from the First or Second World Wars, mm-hmm. for example, which we 
fallen into disuse now. So we can read and read between the lines and interpret their research and, and, tell, and show, at least show them how the story unfolds. We can do those sorts of things mm. with, with notice because that can sometimes only take a few minutes or something like that. But at the same time, we really encourage people to do it themselves and with a bit of diligent digging and, and, and enjoying what they're doing, mm. it's amazing what they will come across. There's a lot out there. And we, and we use these electronic uh, uh, vehicles a lot yeah. you know, for our own displays as well. They're very handy. Yeah, well, well they are. They are really <laughs> useful. If, if they were around 40 years ago, we probably wouldn't have the library the size I have now. <laughs> You know, all the books we have to read and, 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 in fact, some of the references, you know, uh, you have to go through 12 volumes of Bean's official history when there's some fantastic um, potted histories now and, you know, it's, it's really uh, been very, very useful, even for our own volunteers who don't have the knowledge, but we encourage them to use our library, which is available to them as volunteers, mm-hmm. and so they can read these books and just... So when they're taking a tour, they can become more confident and more comfortable in when people are going to ask a question. Because people say, well, look, I'm not a military historian, I, I just can't get involved. And we say, well, it's not a matter of that. You can just be with people and you'll learn a lot yourself as you go along with different people. Yeah. And through the different galleries, you know, and host them through or if you're taking a tour. And then, you know, some people have greater confidence and they do read more. They, they, their military knowledge, history knowledge is good. And so they make great gallery guides. So they can actually, as they're taking a tour of school children through or adults, they can actually explain different things to them as well as letting the people touring stop for a while and have a little bit of a, a look around themselves before mm-hmm. they move on to the next gallery. Great. Now, you said before that you know people will tell you that they had a specific piece that really spoke to them or something they really remember. I remember being there quite young. I was there quite a lot when I was quite young because I think my aunt was actually involved and spent a little time there with her and Vivian Bullingle. And I really remember the Prisoner of War display and the statues that you had set up of the, of the Changi prisoners. And that stuck with me my entire life. Do you have anything that's particularly stuck with you? Well, because I'm surrounded by it all the time, not really. Mm-hmm. I see a purpose in all of them. I mean, the display you mentioned, and it's interesting that you had a connection there. It surely <laughs> shows how old I'm getting now. Uh, but we've had we've had experiences a bit like that, like what you're saying. And Vivian Bullwinkle, well, she was just a sensational oh, person. And uh, she was down at Dillhorn with us in those very early days. Mm-hmm. Just a great person. And anyway, I remember a soldier wrote when I was curator in the collection he wrote to me from East Timor back in about 1999 2000 2001 something mm-hmm. like that. and he actually wrote to me said look I came through your museum at high school and here I'm enclosing some photographs and some um, leaflets that were up in, in Timor for your museum for your archives oh, wow. and that was just blew me away I thought nice. that's such a good thing you know we're not going to get through to everybody to that extent mm. but recruiting and getting people involved in the military is part of you know what the museum does so that, that is a very powerful experience, you know, from young people going through. And they have come through and said, oh, look, I came through this museum uh, and he's now my family coming through. He's my boy, he's three and four years old yeah. and all this. So that, we've been around that long. But getting, getting back to that, with that, the Japanese experience, yeah, that's a very powerful one. Life-size diorama with the mannequins there. That was, that was one of our, our uh, remains one of our central focus displays. And that started in 19, well, it was set up in 95, finally. And it was set up by Scott Properjohn, who was very well known to many older West Australians, mm-hmm. and on TV with his carpentry, carpentry shows and how to do things and stuff like that in those early days. And Scott, he came down and ran a team of other enthusiasts who built these things. Mm-hmm. And But he worked under the direction of the actual prisoners who were prisoners of the Japanese. Mm-hmm. And, of course, those chaps in those days were sort of in their 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. 
And so they showed him, you know, what, how they had to get by because they had no objects at all. They, they, they had no supplies. It was, it was just nothing. Terrible, terrible life. A nightmare experience for them. Anyway, so they created this display based on them saying, this is how it's done. Mm -hmm. And so even the mannequins, we've had some people say, well, gee, they're a bit ordinary-looking mannequins, but they're missing the essence of it. They intentionally had the mannequins in this nightmarish appearance mm. because that was their experience. They're not the big chesty bronze, you know, broad-shouldered, square-jawed bronzed Anzac. Yeah. These people have been absolutely debilitated by their experience and still trying to get through it. So it really shows the Burma-Thai railway experience. Mm of building the railway and the, and the, the atrocious conditions it was under. And uh, anyway, um, those very early days, once it was set up, the, the Changi Museum up in Singapore, representatives heard about it and came down and wanted to see it. Yeah. And wanted to employ one of our people who was there to go up there and try and recreate it. Mm. Now, I think since then they've done their own thing anyway. But it was a very powerful one. And there are, that is one gallery where we, we really do warn uh, women yeah. and young children mm. that it's confronting. Yes, it is quite confronting. You know, we don't pull any punches, and that's what the, the, the Australians who are prisoners of the Japanese said, look, mm. we know that there's, there's you know, the, you know, society's changing and there's and the political correctness and other things, but do not sanitise our display. Mm -hmm. This is just how it is. This is what we know what, you know, these infantry people did up in New Guinea or in, in North Africa and, you know, all the other, you know, ordnance and everybody else, whatever it did, whatever unit it was, but our experience was totally different. Our heroes weren't the people jumping out and taking out machine gun posts. Mm -hmm. Our heroes were the doctors and the medical orderlies uh, through those difficult times. So that's a, that's a powerful thing for you to take away, and people do take away from it. And I remember we were warned by a school teacher <laughs> who had a child who was just crying <laughs> and said, mm, I think you better warn people before they go into that gallery. <laughs> and so that was several years ago, so we really do try and keep on top of that. And there are some people who, who had... Uh, you know their fathers were up there, mm. and they can't go in it. They yeah. go in it, and they have to back off. Yeah. It's just too too much for them, which we understand and respect, of course. But look, uh, with with objects that appeal personally, it, no, there are just so many. Because, I mean, we have this great collection of all or a great number of of Western Australia's colours, our flags that have our battle honours on mm. them. The the colours are for infantry, and we have our tenth light horse geed on a smaller standard or flag. They were saved from. Uh, deterioration and loss from the State War Memorial back in 1988 mm. during the bicentennial grant we received. And, I mean, they put in the crypt below the State War Memorial mm. in lovely big showcases, which are no longer there, of course, mm. where those iron grills are. That's where the showcases were. But the water was coming through and they were just falling apart. And generally, colours are supposed to go to dust traditionally. Yeah. However, with such a short military experience, these colours became very precious. Mm -hmm. So a program was introduced, and a volunteer who's still with me uh, at the museum today, a chap called Peter Shaw, in fact, he's, he was one of the originals. He's a 1977 man. I came later in 78, and he was there in the formative years, still works with us, does a fantastic job. And Peter uh, has this interest in this area, and he coordinated this. So we managed to get, after various meetings and honorary colonels in the army and all sorts of things, get all the colours out, and we displayed them. And when the... Ex-service units were very active, 2nd 28th Battalion, 2nd 11th and so on. They would visit our museum and have barbecues with their families and we would actually then put their colours, which are in lovely cases, out on display so they could come and see the, the 11th Battalion colours from World War One, Gallipoli, Posiers and all this type of thing. And then they'd see the World War Two colours and they'd say, well, there I, I was there, I was at Badir or at Derna or those battle honours that are there. Mm. And there were some pretty misty interior occasions 
And of course, they want to be photographed with them, with their families. So saving the colours, literally, is is a unique display within Australia. There are colours laid up and displayed in cathedrals and around the place. The Shrine of Remembrance in Melbourne has a superb collection of all the Victorian unit colours, just still hanging from the poles Mm -hmm. in the crypt. But this is a unique display within the Australian Army History Unit. And you can, whereas in the crypt, you can only... There it is up there. Here, you can, you'll be going right up to it and, yeah. and physically seeing it and under glass, you know, you're touching it. So the, the colours have always been important. Uh, we mentioned the Victoria Crosses. Um, they're, they're obviously very significant. We've got a fantastic bit of knitting by a prisoner of war from the First World War, which a lot of the women cannot believe was done by a, a male prisoner. And we've got a picture of the, of the chap, a guy called uh, Rudd, I think it was Jack, I think it's Jack Rudd from memory, I think he was 11th Battalion. And what he used to do when he was a prisoner of the Germans in the First War, and they had a terrible time as well because you know, Germany had a blockade going, so they needed all the food virtually for their own people, let alone for Allied prisoners. So they had a very tough time. Anyway, so uh, with the Red Cross parcels coming through, or their equivalent, Jack apparently uh, would uh, uh, unravel the wool from the socks and gather enough wool together, and he made this fantastic sleeveless turtleneck jumper yeah. and it was virtually using wire from the prison fences, he didn't have proper knitting needles or anything like it and apparently, I'm not a knitter but I can recognise quality, this was a superb apparently knitting example that he, and he wore this, this uh, jumper all through his prison of war experience as well and bought it home, family kept it forever and then it came to the museum with this great story behind it, whereas it could have just been a jumper that's put in the bottom drawer and what's the story with this? Oh, that's yeah. just an old jumper and it's, it's thrown out. Could have just ended up in an yeah. old shop. And so when the ladies come through particularly, they look at this bit of knitting and when we tell them the story, they just, just can't quite believe it. It's, of course, it's khaki. It's yeah. a sort of khaki green colour. It's not too, it's not flash. But it's, it's skilled. And I, and I love those quirky objects. Mm. And we've got things like that. We're in the Prisoner of War display, again, there's a, it brings to mind, is a little circular uh, pillbox mm-hmm. if you like but it's not a pillbox it's an it's an old crystal radio and it's it's the size of a 20 cent piece or mm-hmm. no bigger than a 50 cent piece and this particular prisoner second 11th battalion chapping by the name of brown and he built this while he's a prisoner and mm-hmm. so they could actually listen to the bbc radio while there are prisoners in their camp now if they ever caught with it it'd be seriously mm-hmm. in trouble but this little crystal radio he could be using to plug in you know little hearing aid type of uh, ear device and they, the prisoners could keep current with what's happening outside the wire literally and so we have that little radio now again if it was in a say a deceased estate and people didn't realize what it was mm-hmm. it could just be discarded with all the other stuff in the trinket box mm-hmm. you know so little objects like that can mean mean a lot and so it really just goes on a bit you know <laughs> with all the other things that are there. It's just great, whether it's clothing, equipment, the medals, of course, they're very personal. I remember with one medal group, uh, to the Battle of Long Tan, which is you know well-known within the public, the major, as far as the public are concerned, major action, or known action they're aware of for Vietnam. And I remember the chappie there who's been a great supporter to our museum, and Neville came up to me and said, look, uh, oh, look, my brother-in-law was at Long Tan. And I said, oh, really? That's interesting. And chatted about it over the years. Mm-hmm. And uh, he lives in Queensland. And I said, oh, that's very good. And that's how the conversation sort of went on and off. And then and some years later came to me and said, look, you know, I mentioned my brother-in-law. He died, um, unfortunately. And, uh, but I think there's a good chance I can get the medals for your museum, if you like. And I said, well, that's, that'd be great. But because he's a Queenslander, we're all focused on West Australia. That's our collection policy. Mm-hmm. 
He said, oh, no, no, he's not, he's not a Queenslander. He's, he's born in Fremantle. He just lived in Queensland. <laughs> so he couldn't get those quick enough. Yep. So, you know, it's a roundabout way of dealing with it. Anyway, his story you know, joined the army um, just after World War II. Went to Korea, and he'd served at the Battle of the Hook, which is a fairly serious action in Korea, right towards the closing stages of the war, when the Chinese and everyone was lobbying for more space and land and, and all that sort of thing, and during the uh, trench warfare period. And that was very decisive, you know, very tough action. And then he went to, into the Malayan emergency, into Malaya, in the, in the uh, 50s after Korea, and, and then went to Vietnam and found himself in D Company of 6th Battalion, Royal Australian Regiment at Long Tan. Jesus. And, uh, and then went back a second time, did two tours in Vietnam with 6th Battalion, Royal Australian Regiment. And it's just such a great story, picture of him there, got his identity discs. And again, if you can sort of just tell those sort of stories, which generally are lost, they're just sitting in a bottom drawer somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think between the built heritage of artillery barracks being so unique and interesting in its own way, and we have people who are architectural students who come purely down to look at that, as they did with the East Perth Museum in Dilhorn. Mm-hmm. Grand colonial mansion full of lead light, jarras, cedars, she-oaks, original Edwardian tiles and all that type of late Victorian tiling. So they had no interest in the museum. They just <laughs> want to look at the architecture. And so it doesn't matter. It's just whatever you know areas of interest you have. So Bill Heritage is important to us. Mm-hmm. And that's why I guess the battle for 1999 to 04 uh, was so important for the public and the community. And gee, they, they even surprised us how the community came out of nowhere to say it's just not good enough. Yeah. You know, we're losing too much of it as it is. And, and to see veterans, you know, protesting, because veterans don't protest like that. You know, you're getting elderly people on their walking frames and carrying placards yeah. and all that stuff. So they saw it as a very serious thing. Mm-hmm. Too much has gone. With West Australia, I said, being so remote from with the Canberra, and it said, class of its own, and a superb museum which you'd encourage everyone to see at least once in their life, but a different organisation. And so we have got what we've got, and when people come through, they are just absolutely delighted with the, with the story we're telling, how we're telling it, the level of quality to it as well. Mm. You know, it's a, it's a win-win for everybody, and that's the main thing. But core business is education, uh, but everyone gets something out of it, you know, along the way. So uh, it's all looking good. I mean, tenure's very strong. We had a, from that battle, we had an outcome was a licence, mm-hmm. guaranteed 25 years at the location, with an option to renew for a further 25. Yeah. So, you know, you really are setting things in concrete and the fact the amount of money that's now being spent on it, both from defence to maintain it, because mm-hmm. they look after the outside of the buildings, you know, all our utilities and, and the tiles blow off in winter and <laughs> all those things that happen from time to time. So it's, uh, everyone's working together because it's a defence asset and, you know, while we're there, we've certainly improved it and, and, and so the taxpayers' money is safe. Mm-hmm. But they're happy saying, that I'm happy that my money is going to this place because this is story that needs to be told and as we approach Anzac Day you know we always say that you know without that sort of service and sacrifice we wouldn't have the country we have today mm. and that's largely true I know it's always sound like a cliche <laughs> but at the same time um, we are enormous debt there and the, and the very least we can do is just not forget them and tell these visibly tell the stories yeah. mm, it's great yeah I think the museum does a wonderful job at that just thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Guys, if you haven't been to the museum lately, go check it out. If you haven't been in the last 10 years, they have done massive renovations and it's looking amazing. Those new displays are very informative and they look amazing. Thank you very much. No, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> Shay, thank you very much indeed for allowing us the opportunity. This podcast was edited, published and produced by the RSLWA. Head to www.rslwa.org.au 
for other content. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.